Hello and welcome to The Economists. I'm Peter Martin. And my name is Gigi Foster. Hello. Richard Aidy will return with the money in April. In the meantime, we get to talk about economics. You can hear it on the Money podcast feed on your podcast app, or you can find us on the ABC Listen app, again, at the Money feed. Today, a special treat. Forget your troubles, come on, get happy. You better chase all your cares away. Happiness. Yes, the economics of happiness. If you don't think that happiness is an economic question, keep listening. Economics is about the choices we make and the outcomes that result. Now, arguably, happiness is a more important outcome than money. Gigi, where did all of this modern-day explosion of research into happiness come from? It was only beginning when I was at university. You're probably going to tell me it happened centuries ago. (laughs) Flinders University only began in the 70s. Sorry, Peter, I I am going to tell you that. Um, In fact, a lot of people don't know, but happiness is really the aim of economics. And Uh, always has been. It's about welfare maximization. That's what economics often, you know, sees as its main objective. It's the thing we try to maximize. Um, Adam Smith, uh, the founding father of economics in many people's minds, his invisible hand was in the business, not of crafting maximum wealth for everyone, but of crafting maximum welfare, social welfare for everybody. Why despite have we the got fact that sidetracked? Well, then. I think because one of the things that Smith and, and most economic models of behavior uh, purport to explain is that people can be self-interested and greedy wealth maximizers in a sense, but if they all are doing that, then total social aggregate welfare gets maximized by the mechanism of the invisible So money hand. was a convenient shorthand. Well, the question is really what is happiness in, in the broadest term. So an economist really speaks of surplus. The surplus that's created from a trade can be in in the consumer's mind because he only pays, say, $20 for a particular good but actually values it at $50, which means he gets $30 of surplus, or it can be in the form of uh, money that uh, a producer takes in as profit. So he produces a good for you know $10 and sells it for $30. He gets a surplus of $20. I'm in love with my new car. Right, so, so we're not, not in love, not literally in love. We spoke about like last, last week, last no. week the, the other week. But I paid a certain amount for that. Mind you, we'd had it for about twenty years. The old mm. one. I paid a certain amount from it, and. I reckon I'm getting more out of it just for the moment. Well, there you um, go. Um, it's actually interesting, Peter. So so my mother was a psychologist, as you probably know. And when I was very small, we were riding in a car together and she, as was her wants, started asking me some deep questions. And she asked me, well, Gigi, what for you is the purpose of life? You poor thing. I, yeah. Well, <laughs> she experimented you know, on I have, Any yeah. child of a psychologist knows how this feels. I, without hesitation, said, well, to make other people happy. Now, she came back with, well, what about yourself? And I sort of said, well, yeah, maybe I also count. But so this notion of happiness for me was an obvious thing that we were all looking for. We seem to be talking, you and I, and we'll come to our guest, Dr. Betsy Stevenson, shortly, who uh, has really cracked a murder mystery about happiness. But we're having this discussion. You've talked about your mum who's a psychologist, and I think that people who've been listening might think that economics is cheating. Hmm. Can I raise this prospect? Physicists, right, they experiment on particles and that. They do uh, equations and things. Economists do that too, but they also cheat by looking inside their heads. 
Did that make it not a real sign? It's true that because the phenomena that we study have to do with human behavior, we've got petri dishes all around us and inside of us. And so, yes, we can use introspection to try to and we formulate do. We've our theories. And we've been doing it with love, with education in, in the last few weeks. A- absolutely. And we, we check against our introspective observations just like we check against our empirical observations about other people's behavior and behavior in other cultures and behavior across time when we're developing our theories of, of how the world works. But I don't think that that means we're not a science, Peter. I, I think, actually, I would say that because some of the, the phenomena that economic studies are so very personal, so very uh, sensitive, that really you need a lot of courage to be an economist. Can I ask you a question? All things considered, uh, answer straight away. Mm. How satisfied are you with your life as a whole these days? Answer on a scale of one, which means unsatisfied, extremely, to ten. Uh, nine. Do you know the typical result is eight? Well, there we go. <laughs> Australia's a happy place. <laughs> I think most of the time I'd say eight. The point is, this turns out to be a robust measure. That is to say, if I ask you that and you give me nine, if uh, strangers look at a photo of you, they will... Um, identify you as being happier than someone else, it turns out to be fairly good across nations. Up until the 1970s, it had been thought that the more money a society made, the happier its citizens were. And then this idea was killed. There was an article in the London Financial Times and the headline was, the hippies were right. (laughs) Suddenly it became thought that um, although money did matter for an individual, for a society as a whole, it made very little difference. The idea even made it into popular culture where it was wrongly applied to individuals. I heard it in uh, uh, one of my more favourite movies, uh, Beyond Sunset. Uh, here's a clip of it. Uh, you'll hear Ethan Hawke explaining it to Judy Delpy. We have these innate set points, uh-huh. you know, and it's like nothing much that happens to us changes our disposition. Really? You believe that? I think so. I read this study where they followed people who'd won the lottery and people mm-hmm. who'd become paraplegics, right? As soon as people gotten used to their new situation, uh, they were more or less the same. Like uh, if they were basically an optimistic, jovial person, mm-hmm. they're now an optimistic, jovial person in a wheelchair. If they're a petty, miserable asshole, okay, they're a petty, miserable asshole with a new Cadillac, a house, and a boat. That's the sort of thing. And I have read so many columns in newspapers, I have, to my shame, written some of them, that money shouldn't matter. And it ought to matter Mm. because money can buy most of the things that make you happy. I think we liked it because it was a moral tale. It told us Mm. something that, I don't know, sounded right. I understand the sort of appeal from a moral perspective, that somehow money shouldn't matter, yeah. that we're, we're bigger than that. I don't know. As an economist, I, I guess I sort of see it as a, a little naive to think that, that's, that there's really no relationship um, between money and, and happiness. I was actually quoted in the papers a couple of weeks ago um, saying that I thought that Amazon's arrival in Australia was going to be great for consumer happiness because people would be able to buy more stuff for themselves and their families, and that would make them happy. And my goodness, did I catch heat for that quote, right? People did not like to hear about that. You wouldn't catch it from me. Well, the thing is, I just think it's incontrovertible. It's not that money is the only thing that can make us happy. And and we'll talk about that later in the show. But I think it's just, you know, categorically denying that money can buy things that make us happier is like denying that, that, you know, humans have progressed throughout history. Shortly, we'll meet one of the detectives who cracked the case 
who worked out how the common sense view of happiness was murdered and uh, she's helped bring it back to life. You're listening to The Economists on RN with Dr Gigi Foster and me, Peter Martin. Maybe money does buy happiness after all. Joining us in the studio is Professor Betsy Stevenson, an economist at the University of Michigan and a former member of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors and a former chief economist of the U.S. Department of Labor. Hi, Betsy. Hello. It's great to be here. Betsy, uh, you've just come from a conference where you've been updating Australians about what's happening in the U.S. economy, but you've also been on the case of the link between income and happiness for years. Before your work, it was widely believed that money had little to do with happiness. How did that rather surprising idea come to take hold? Can you tell us? Well, uh, an economist named Richard Easterlin noticed that even though when you looked within a country, people who had more income reported being happier than people who had less income. That's a very robust finding. It's true in every country around the world. We now have And that you would expect. And, and you would expect that, right? So people who who have more income um, are happier than people who have less. But the surprising finding he noticed was that on average people weren't happier in rich countries than people were in poorer countries. There's no improvement in happiness that comes from economic development. Going from being a developed, a developing country with a GDP per capita of maybe a few hundred dollars to a wealthy, uh, developed country with a GDP per capita of tens of thousands of dollars did nothing in terms of the happiness of the citizens. No case for foreign aid then. So, well, <laughs> that uh, I will say the people who are most resistant to this idea have always been economists who focus on development, who are trying to help developing countries uh, improve their economies, because this essentially said what you were doing had no purpose in terms of improving people's well-being. So hard to believe. And so then he said, well, let's look... Um, within countries over time. And Japan is a terrific example because it's a country that within the last hundred years really went from being a developing country to a developed country. So we got to see rapid growth. And what did that mean for the well-being of its citizens? And he found nothing, a flat line, no change. And he declared that developing a country, growing the economy, it might bring more health care, it might bring more uh, consumer goods, it might bring more food, it might bring lower mortality, but it wasn't bringing happiness. <laughs> and this really stayed the dominant view up until you and Justin Morfus, an Australian economist, by the way, in the US, I think almost accidentally started seeing faults in the, you went back to the original data. Well, when you say accidentally, we did have one break of good luck. So we, we really... I was, we just doubted that this could be true. And, and really, the problem when you looked across countries, it was clear that he had a statistical problem. So this is a little bit mathsy, but um, the issue is that when you only have a few countries, you don't have a lot of data points, 
then things you can have something that looks like a zero, but it's really just imprecision. You don't really know. Maybe happiness is going up a lot with income. Maybe it's going down with income. Maybe there's no relationship. You just don't have enough data, so you can't say anything. So this is a really interesting point about measurement, because I think it's a broader point than, than just Easterlin's problem, which is not only measures of happiness, but also measures of income or well or, or sort of how well off we are, are riddled with measurement problems. And, and economists, I think you probably maybe agree with me on this, I don't know, but we are constantly faced with having to muddle through and make the best of a, of a bad measurement situation when a lot of the stuff we want to measure, we, we, we can't. Right. So this, this was a bad measurement situation. And what was happening was we were getting new data that was going to give us uh, a better ability to measure. The Gallup organization started polling in most countries around the world. And not only were they polling in most countries, um, which increased the number of countries in, our, in the data, but they were also going in every year. And what this did was just allowed statistical analysis with much greater precision. And once we did that analysis, with that greater precision, what we saw was phenomenal, which was that the relationship between average well-being in a country, average happiness in a country, and their average, their GDP per capita was quite strong. In fact, it was exactly the same as what we had seen within countries before. So the Easterlin paradox had been that within a country, richer people are happier than people with less income, yet the same thing isn't true across countries, we showed, no, no, it is, we can't reject that the exact same relationship you see within a country uh, is true across countries. So that that improvement that you get w by being wealthier in your within your society is the same kind of improvements we see when we increase the incomes of poorer countries. How strong is that relationship? So we found that it was an 80% correlation. In other words, we could explain average happiness in countries uh, enormously by their GDP. In fact, there's no single factor that explains happiness differences across countries as well as differences in their average incomes across Money countries. Money explains things better than anything else. Um, money explains things better than every, anything else. But I, I think that thing that you want to need to really deeply understand is that GDP is a measure of, it's supposed to be a measure of improvements in living standards. And so we do see that as GDP increases, we see, you know, infant mortality rates go down. We see life expectancies go up. Um, these, it may be these things that GDP is getting us, what we're buying with our money is better health care, better outcomes for our children. These things are making us happier. And when you think about it that way, it's not much of a surprise yeah, at but, all. But how do you explain that relationship with, uh, say, the Japan graph? We certainly did get very lucky with Japan. What we did was the Japanese data was, you're not going to be surprised in Japanese. <laughs> um, and uh, people had been using that data, American British, Australian, English-speaking scholars without ever translating the code book. So, <laughs> Talk about measurement problems. <laughs> so, mm. so they just sort of, they, they found there's this question that asked about well-being. They assumed it was consistent over time. We hired a 
Japanese graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania and just asked him to translate the code books for us. And what we found was that the question had changed quite dramatically over time in a way that would require people to give higher and higher numbers just to have the same level of happiness they had before. In other words, you know, it um, the top bucket was something like, things aren't all that bad in my life right now. <laughs> and then they went to, you know, by the end, it was like, my life is ecstatic. It cannot be any better. So, and, so you know, when you talk about measurement error, this is going to put downward pressure. Well, how right? do you explain yeah, it in yeah. America where you've got the same thing? Um, well, so the Japan in America, it's a very different story. So with Japan, we are talking about a country that went from being a developing country to a developed country, a lot of GDP growth, and a lot of growth in well-being. In the U.S., what we have is something very different, which is happiness levels haven't moved much, even though there has been growth in GDP, but there hasn't been growth in average household income, and, and certainly haven't, hasn't been growth in median wages. So this is an inequality thing. So it's, it's not 100% clear what's going on in the U.S., but part of it is probably an inequality thing. We have an increasing concentration of the income going to the top. That's not going to make the people in the middle mm. better so when or we, happier. So when we say GDP, just to clarify for people, we really mean GDP per capita, right? Right. Because it's the, the amount of, of spending power that each person has to buy things like better health care or more goods and services that would enable them to enjoy their, their lives more, right? And to clarify even further, so GDP is gross domestic product, mm. the amount that's produced in the society or the amount that's earned in the society. So it's, it's a measure, a measure, I suppose, of the amount of money. An imperfect measure. Yes. <laughs> yes. As, yes. as the happiness survey, because if, if I'd asked you that question on a different day, Gigi, oh, you're probably happy all the time. I'm pretty but consistent, Peter. if you'd ask Peter, me, but... <laughs> see, I'm moody, right? <laughs> you are. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> happiness is an imprecise, but it gets mm. precise, I guess, if you do it across lots of people. Yeah, so that's average it across lots of people. But I think, I mean, the U.S. is a special case of what what is happening. Um, There's been a disconnect between GDP growth and real wage growth and household income growth over this same period that we don't fully understand. There's declining share of income going to labor over this same period. And yet uh, what we see is women have become less happy over this period and men have basically stagnated their happiness over this period. The the average, in fact, disguises. The average disguises slight increases in male happiness Mm -hmm. and slight decreases in female happiness. There's something weird because, I mean, women have been increasingly participating in the labor force. Maybe it makes them less happy. Having higher incomes. Well, we spoke about love the other week, of course, and how, you know, power is something that um, is, is relevant for love. If love makes us happy, I mean, is is the increasing empowerment of women somehow causing them to have more existential angst? Or well, there there's certainly many people. Uh, we have done this this research. We we wrote a paper on the paradox of declining female happiness, and many people have speculated about the increasing angst, uh, and and that could be. I mean, certainly what we see in the earlier period, the 1970s, 1980s, is more of female happiness came from their happiness in their marriage. Mm. Um, so it was very highly correlated. Their life satisfaction was highly correlated with their marital satisfaction. Today, 
it's less correlated. And that's because things like job satisfaction and other aspects of personal happiness matter more for women. So they're becoming a bit more complex that way. So, so let me ask you a follow up on, on that point, which is that, you know, behavioral economics has, has suggested in the last 15, 20 years that people have preferences which might account for sort of uh, an inertia in happiness levels, a kind of non-budging of happiness when income moves. So people may adapt, for example, to higher levels of income. Somehow they may have um, preferences which aren't about the absolute income that they earn, but rather where they compare their own income to somebody else's income. Or where they've been. I mean, so it seems to me like the story you're, you're telling is that none of that sort of stuff is really what's going on, that, you know, adaptation to circumstance, like the paraplegic who, you know, actually adapts and is perfectly happy after a year or whatever, that that's not really what's going on. I mean, to what extent do you think those explanations have any validity? Well, that paraplegic study has some significant measurement error. <laughs> uh, so to revisit that, you know, I, I think that it's also worth noting that while happiness is very highly correlated with GDP. There are things that impact happiness that don't impact GDP. And, you know, one of the things we've seen in, in the United States, and so this is, a, it, it, I'd say this is one of the most compelling arguments to me. I, I don't have enough evidence to know for sure this is what's going on. But um, a scholar named Bob Putnam at Harvard has talked about declining um, community involvement in America. Mm -hmm. You know, he started with a book called Bowling Alone, where he described Americans just don't get together with their friends, their family, their neighbors. They're increasingly isolated. He extrapolated what, what's happening to the membership of bowling clubs. And exactly. He said that, 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 that's, what, that's what's happening. It's then. called Bowling Alone because they're still bowling, but nobody's doing it in a club anymore. <laughs> Nobody does it with their mates. And what's interesting is that that's happening that, that decline in community is happening, even though the, the survey data on subjective well-being and happiness, when we look at young people, so there's a data set we look at which uh, surveys people right before they go to right before they graduate high school. And what we see is that the three pillars of happiness in people's life are work, family, and community. We're speaking with Dr. Betsy Stevenson about the economics of happiness. You're listening to The Economists on RN. So one of the things, again, to clarify here is that when we say that income and GDP are related, it's not actually a linear relationship, right? It's if you take log GDP, which means that for every additional dollar of GDP per capita that you give a country at a very low level of income, like, I don't know, you know, Botswana or someplace in sub-Saharan Africa, you get a bigger happiness bang than you do if you give that extra dollar to, you know, the United States or some other country with a high level of income. We talked about diminishing marginal returns last week. Is there also a diminishing marginal returns story at the individual level, whereby once you get a certain amount of income, you should really spend your extra marginal unit of effort not on trying to get more income, but maybe on trying to improve your relationships, improve your connection to your community, or some other type of non-monetary activity. So um, th that is a terrific question. I'm really glad you brought that up because you know what I like to say is that you know if I give a dollar to Bill Gates, what our research shows is we do make him better off but infinitesimally better <laughs> off. If I give that dollar to somebody who is, you know, uh, even middle class in Botswana, I increase their well-being enormously. And that's because in order to get the same uh, boost in happiness, I 
for for two people of very different incomes, I need to give them the same percentage change. So you need to in double it for each. Yeah. So if I double Bill Gates's income, <laughs> I can get the same happiness boost as if I double the income of somebody whose annual income is five hundred dollars a year. It's a lot cheaper for me to double the low income person's. Our study. Uh, someone once told me is the best case for foreign aid they've ever seen. <laughs> and also for redistribution. <laughs> for redistribution, in society. Yes. So take money from, we've got this woman called Gina Reinhart, she's uh, one of the richest women in the world, uh, richest person in Australia. Um, if we take money from her and give it to other people who will really appreciate it, we will, with the same amount of dollars, increase total happiness? Exactly. And that might be the explanation for the whole overall puzzle in the United States, which is we have been effectively taking dollars from the middle class and giving them to the very top of the distribution. So that increase in inequality is shifting money from the middle to people who already have tons and what that's going to do is that transfer is going to lower average well-being. So I want to ask you specifically about what the government's role should be, in your view, in terms of happiness promotion. As, of course, you know, economics is one of the uh, only sciences to sort of admit up front that people are greedy. And traditionally, economists have advised governments to design markets in such a way that that greed can be accommodated and deliver the highest social welfare for all. But the government advice has generally been focused on, you know, how do we help this market to become more competitive? How do we support the institutions that enable trade? All these sorts of things. But I know I've been reading that just recently there's been kind of an international move towards um, a more explicit role for government in terms of increasing happiness. Do you so mean targeting is, happiness? Yeah. So, so more explicitly targeting it rather than targeting the creation of competitive markets. So, for example, the UK has this What Works Center for Wellbeing um, that helps the UK government and departments to focus on happiness optimizing policies. I, I've just read this morning that the first global happiness policy report was launched at the Global Dialogue for Happiness Forum, um, which is in the UAE, uh, you know, happening very soon. So I'm just wondering whether you think, Betsy, that governments should be taking more of an explicit role in, in trying to promote happiness directly, or should they be more confined to the, the market-supporting kind of role that they've had before? So I'm going to give you a slightly wishy-washy answer to that, <laughs> in that um, you know, GDP is highly correlated with happiness. So you know, focusing on GDP will help increase the living standards of uh, society in most cases. But there is a role for happiness, I think, in evaluating government policies. When we evaluate, say, job training programs, there's too much emphasis on what people earn after they get retrained and not enough emphasis on whether we restored them to a comfort level with their own life where they feel good about what they're doing. You know, if, if some worker gets displaced by technology or trade and they lose their job, you know, it's not just about whether they're going to earn as much money or earn that, mm. that makes the training program worth it. It's whether they feel like they have a purpose in their life. You mentioned purpose and meaning. Is there something more than happiness? We looked at a wide range of things that you might think matter and how correlated are they with uh, GDP and how correlated are they with, with well-being. And things like, are you treated with respect in your daily life? Very correlated with GDP, very correlated with well-being. Did you get good-tasting food to eat yesterday? 
very correlated with GDP, very correlated with well-being. Um, so there are a lot of, of these things that sort of feel like meaning that are correlated, but there are some that aren't. Like, did you learn something yesterday? Learning is really important to our you know, mental health and for feeling good about ourselves. And that's not very correlated with GDP or boredom. And I always like to say the things that keep my five-year-old happy are actually not that correlated with GDP. And so there, there's something to that that we want to take into account. <laughs> Thanks, Betsy. We've been speaking with Professor Betsy Stevenson, an economist at the University of Michigan and a former member of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors and one of the world's leading researchers in the field of happiness. Thank you for joining us, Betsy. My pleasure. To hear this program again, go to the Money Program page and listen there, or you can listen again via the ABC radio app. Next week on The Economists, what should we tax and what should we leave alone from an economist's point of view? It mightn't be what you think. Join us next week. Bye-bye for now.